Well, that song that you just listened to, and thank you, Corey and Jen, that song is what inspired this series. It was Christmas weekend when Esty and I were spending the holiday in Columbus with our boys. And we decided to watch the movie A Star is Born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And it is an amazing story about a musician helping a young singer find fame. And yet his own age and alcoholism sends his career in a downward spiral. As a part of that soundtrack, they sang this duet that you just heard called Shallow. And that song acted like a sound worm in my brain. It was one of those songs that I might call sticky music. You just can't help but keep humming it and singing it. And as I kept thinking about that over and over, I thought a little bit about this part of the song. I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in, I'll never meet the ground, crash through the surface where they can't hurt us, we're far from the shallow now. It inspired me to think deeper about many parts of the Bible. In fact, it challenged me to rethink some of the things that I had been taught for many years. Most people never leave the shallow end of the pool when it comes to scripture understanding. Most of the time, they want simplistic, kind of five-minute devotional understanding of the scriptures. And usually, they want to support what they have already formed in their identity. And so, we don't take the scripture seriously. We don't take it at depth. But that's going to change in this series. At some point in life, each one of us ponders this idea, who am I? And it's a question, I think, that is central to all religions and psychology and literature as well. It's certainly relatable to the music industry. And from the time we are children, though we see ourselves as the center of the world, we still are constantly wondering, who am I? Now, as children, when somebody asks, well, who are you, little boy? Who are you, little girl? We often answer with our name. But our lives are much more complex than that. As we get a little bit older, we understand that we're a part of a larger unit than just our family. Yes, we have sisters and we have brothers, but we also have uncles and aunts. And then as we mature a little bit more, we understand that we're a part of a community. And we embrace those larger identifications. Perhaps you're a nurse and you're a part of the nursing community, or you're a teacher, and you're part of the teaching community, and so on and so forth. So with maturity comes various viewpoints that we acquire almost unconsciously, and it becomes part of our paradigm. It's the way that we look at the world. It's the way we interpret the world. So a nurse looks very differently at the world than, let's say, a teacher or a lawyer. And so what we find is that we assume all this identity into us, 
And that's the way we navigate the world in which we live. Now, one of the books of the Bible that we don't understand very well because we are always at the shallow end of the pool is the book of Genesis. And primarily, the book of Genesis is a book about identity. And it's about forming the national identity of a nation that we know as Israel. But we have been conditioned in many ways to look at the book of Genesis in the shallow waters of simplistic, literal, and even sometimes cartoonish ways. Yet this book sets the course of not only the identity for the nation of Israel, but it sets the course of our own understanding as well. It is a book that is far from the shallow end of the pool. So like Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, we want to dive into the deep end and crash through the surface of easy, cheesy, cotton candy interpretation of such a foundational book. And we're going to take a couple of months to do so. So where do we begin in this deep dive? Some of you might be curious about how to read Genesis. And some of you know that there's controversies. Sometimes there is this awkward relationship between science and Scripture, and you encounter it as soon as you open the book and you look at a chapter about creation. Well, is it trying to give us a history of creation, or is it about something bigger? And I want to tell you that as we do a deep dive, into the book of Genesis, we believe in science, and we believe in Scripture. And we believe in faith, and we believe in formation at the same time. Genesis is a small part of a big story. And it plays a critical role as it sets up the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. So our first goal in this series is to help you see Genesis as one story, a small part of a bigger story that is told in what the Jewish people call the Torah. Now, many of you might know some of the stories of Genesis from childhood. Noah and the Ark, the Tower of Babel, Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat. But how does all that fit into this larger picture? What role is it playing? So we're going to break this series down into larger sections, and we're going to see that it is all about the formation of an identity that takes up the rest of the Old Testament. Now, part of the task of reading the book of Genesis is to know that nothing in the book stands on its own. All these little stories about Abraham and Jacob and Joseph uh, about Lot, uh, about Adam, about Eve. All of these stories all play a part of a bigger purpose. And part of the task of reading Genesis as a story is to read the book through ancient eyes rather than modern ones. So the big question in front of us as we introduce this series, Far From the Shallow, is why does Genesis look the way it does? Of all the stories that the Israelites could tell, and in all the ways that they could have told them, why did they tell it 
the way they did in the book of Genesis. So if you receive our literature, uh, our liturgy uh, via email, you're going to see that I have given to you several statements about the book of Genesis and then a chart. And so the way I want to proceed over the next few minutes is just kind of work through those bullet points and then talk about that chart for a couple of seconds. First point, Genesis is an ancient story. Now that seems to be obvious. It might even sound a little bit patronizing, but it is an ancient, ancient story of the nation of Israel. And yet at the same time, it's not a history book. It doesn't try to give us detailed information of facts as though it was some type of modern history book. It might include some historical facts, certainly, but there is a lot of literary liberties as well. Genesis is not a textbook, so we can't expect it to operate like a textbook. Genesis is not a book of rules either. It's not even a book about life principles. We might learn some insights from it, but not every passage has direct application to us. So let's come back to the movie, A Star is Born Again. Can you imagine watching this movie with a group of friends and you have the remote control in your hand and every five minutes you're stopping the movie and then you're pondering that scene that you've just watched and you look to your friends and you say, now how does that scene apply to your life? Well, number one, you would miss the big story. Number two, most of your family members or friends probably would walk out of the room because you're disjointing the movie. Stories do not apply to our lives, perhaps any more than understanding that when you watch a movie like A Star is Born, it's only the big picture that you begin to see the movements and how it applies not only to us as Christians, but to humanity as a whole as well. So when we read this as an ancient story written at a particular time to a particular people and for a particular purpose, we will stop using Genesis as an argument, a textbook, and a code of conduct, and we will begin to see that it is an ancient story that has memorable characters, it has twists and turns and ups and downs, it has accomplishments, and it has mistakes as well. And that's where we will find relevance to the book of Genesis. Point number two, Genesis is one part of a series. So this series that it's a part of, the Pentateuch, consists of five scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in this particular series, just like Star Wars or any other epic series, it all plays a crucial part of the ongoing story. And if the beginning is only understood by itself, then you're missing its relationship to the middle and to the end as well. So when we look at the rest of the Pentateuch, we can get through Exodus okay, and then when we hit Leviticus, oh my gosh, it's law after law, it is restriction after restriction, 
and we go, oh, this is so tedious. It's so odd. It's so awkward. What's with laws about mildew, wet dreams, and eating pork? I mean, really? What's with all that? And how does it relate to me? Well, you have to understand that a part of this series has an objective. And the objective of the entire Pentateuch is, listen up, Israel. Yahweh is the creator of the cosmos. He has also redeemed you from Egypt, and he's promised you a land in Canaan as your home. You are his people, and he alone is your God. He alone is worthy of your devotion. That's what the whole series is about. So this God is the creator of the world, and he's the savior of Israel, and this theme then carries through the rest of the Old Testament. So Genesis is an ancient story. It's a part of a series. Next, Genesis is also an allegory in many ways. Now that might upset some of you because many of you are stuck in literalism. But just like the movie A Star is Born, you will find that it is more than a story about a rising star and a falling star in the music industry. It's an allegory of the dangers along the way, the difficulty of relationships, the power of forgiveness, and the despair of hopelessness. And it's important to know that it has a long track record. Did you know A Star is Born, Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper, 2018, is only the latest rendition of that storyline? That story goes all the way back to 1937. It's a story written by William Wellman, and it was an originally it was an a, rom a romantic drama uh, starring Janet Gaynor as an inspiring Hollywood actress and Frederick March as a fading movie star who helps launch her career. Same idea, but it's not musicians, it's actors and actresses. So the first thing to notice is this story is going to have some elasticity to it. It's going to stretch into the future. Second making of A Star is Born is in 1954 with Judy Garland and James Mason. It was remade again in 1976 with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And then finally, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. So it has been done several times, and this story has some elasticity to it, and it applies differently in each generation. In other words, what's important to understand is that the story, the characters, and the plot evolves over time. Who knows if it's remade again in 25 years, how this storyline will apply to the next generation that makes a movie of it. So if you don't see the elasticity and the multiple angles of this story, you'll miss the power of the story. So just because Genesis is in the Bible, it does not mean we can make it sound or mean anything that we want it to, it has an original meaning to an original audience. The plot and the players in the story are pictures for other generations to follow, certainly, but 
we have to understand that much of what's in Genesis had a particular purpose to help form a national identity. So this past week's podcast of the Bible for Normal People with Pete N and Jared Bias, they were interviewing a professor by the name of Amanda Mambuvi. She's professor of religion at High Point University in North Carolina. Uh, she wrote a textbook entitled Belonging in Genesis, and I would buy it and read it, except the textbooks cost like $65. So uh, why don't I just give you the essence of it? Here's what she said on the podcast, and I quote, Amanda says, when people now read the Bible, especially us Americans, there's a tendency to have this idea that we are a member of a group. We have an identity that we were born with, and it just is. It is a part of our body, these categories that we have. It is like they were a part of creation, and they are just fixed facts about us onto which everything else in our lives layers on top, including our relationship with God and God's work in our lives." End quote. So the text, according to Amanda, it's telling us something about who we are as human beings, but it's outside of our framework. It's outside our paradigm. And so what we do with Genesis is understand this is helping to form a faith community and their identity. That's why there's so many genealogies in the book of Genesis. Have you ever read through the book of Genesis and you go, what's up with all these names? What's up with all these unpronounceable names and how long they live? Well, that's all a part of a national formation of identity. And there's a reason for that that I'll mention in just a second. Next, Genesis is anonymous. The first problem we encounter in the book of Genesis is the anonymity. Genesis has no title page, no author page, no date of publication, and no dedication page. Now, within evangelical Christianity, we say Moses wrote not only Genesis, but the entire Pentateuch. That's highly unlikely. Jewish and Christian tradition have named Moses as author at times, but that's primarily because he's the main character. But there are good reasons to suggest that he did not write the majority of it. He might have wrote part of it through oral tradition. However, there are edited parts and there's high improbabilities that he wrote many parts of it. For example, in chapter 34 of the book of Deuteronomy, it says in verse 7 that no one knows where Moses is buried. So how did Moses write about his own death, and how did he hide the fact that nobody can find where he's buried? No, that's a later addition. How about this one? Much of the Pentateuch is written in the third person about Moses. That would be quite odd if Moses was the author writing in the third person about himself. And then finally, third, in one place, Moses says that he's the humblest man on earth. That's found in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. That's kind of ironic. If he really was a humble man, would he write that he's the humblest man on the face of the earth? It seems to be an observation from the outside about the man and his character. So Genesis is anonymous. That becomes a challenge to us. But this next point is critical. Genesis is ancestral. 
And what I mean by that is it's serving a special purpose. And it's intentionally not giving us details about a lot of things. But what it does concentrate on all fits into this bigger picture of this nation that is forming a new national identity. And there's a reason for that. So when we're reading the book of Genesis, we need to keep this in the back of our mind. For example, questions arise sort of like this. Why are there two clearly different creation stories at the beginning of the book and they don't agree? Secondly, if Adam and Eve were the first humans, where did Cain get his wife? Third, why is the flood story so choppy and repetitive? Fourth, why two stories on the dispersion of nations back to back? Huh? Chapter 10, chapter 11, it's the same thing. Why? And why are there different names of God that are used throughout the book? Well, you see, Genesis is written for a very special purpose by later editors. Now, most scholars had to do some detective work on this, and it can get quite complicated. However, most scholars believe that Genesis, as we have in our Bible, does not come together until around 539 BCE. Okay, so the story of Moses and the things that happened during his life go back 700 to even 1,000 years earlier than 539 BCE. So why 539 well, that's the year that King Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. And the Babylonians had, kelp, had held uh, Israel captive for about 50 years. Cyrus comes to the throne and allows them to go back to their um, land. Now, the editors of Genesis began assembling older writings, part of which Moses wrote, assembled oral traditions that had been around for hundreds of years, and they began to make a remix. So let's talk about songs. You heard a remix version of the song Shallow just a moment ago by Corey and Jen. It follows the same melodic lines, but it has a different feel to it because the artist is different. The writing of Israel's story was important during the days of King David. And it ramped up until the people went into exile, into Babylon. They're there for 50 years. And as they are coming back into their homeland, one of the things that you'll note is that the writings increase. They begin assembling a lot of the Old Testament. And what we find is they are looking back on their ancient past to make sense of the tragedy that they were in for the last 50 years. And they are trying to answer a question that we all ask several times during the course of our life. Does God really care about me? Does God really care about me? And will we ever regain the glory that we once had? So keep this in mind. It's very important. Genesis is written in light of a national trauma to encourage the people to be faithful to God as they go back into the land. And so the Pentateuch recounts how they got their start, how God gave them a law, gave them the tabernacle, all of these things. And now, 
They have been isolated from all that. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. But now they have the freedom to go back to their land. However, how do we teach the next generation about who we are? Well, you need to retell the story. And part of the frustration for these dedicated Jewish people that survived the exile is the next generation, their kids and their grandkids, look at life much different, uh, different than they do. Their paradigm has changed. And so think of it in this way. Think of European immigrants that have come to America, and they are constantly talking about the old country. But within a generation, their children don't know the language that is their first language. Within a generation, their children are getting Metallica tattoos and body piercings. And they can't figure out what's going on because they're living in a different paradigm. And so parents and grandparents retell the story. And that is possibly what's happening here. The story of Genesis is being told because the people that want to come back into the land, rebuild the temple, reestablish Jerusalem as the capital city, feel the pressure of the next generation losing their way. And that's why the Old Testament had to be translated from Hebrew into Greek, called the Septuagint. So how we read Genesis depends upon us knowing these circumstances. Just like understanding our own Declaration of Independence depends upon our understanding of why it was written in the first place. For example, imagine an archaeologist unearthing the Declaration of Independence 5,000 years from now. They don't know anything about the beginning of America and the fight for independence. And so without that working knowledge, they are open to gross misinterpretation of the Declaration of Independence. And so everything needs to be held in context. So that brings me to the last point. In your liturgy that is emailed out, you'll see a chart, and I'm calling it Genesis from the Air. Genesis breaks down into two parts, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 is the primeval part of the book. Um, it is a, the part of the book that covers thousands, I mean thousands of years. And then chapters 12 through 50 cover, cover hundreds of years, not thousands of years, hundreds of years, as it concentrates on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So look at that chart for a moment. In chapters 1 through 11, you have an account of creation, you have an account of Adam and Eve, you have an account of Cain and Abel, Noah, and Babel. But interspersed in those sections are genealogies. Then in chapters 12 through 50, you have the patriarchal section of the book, and the concentration is on Abraham. And then just a generation, uh, excuse me, there's a genealogy in there as well. Then Isaac, poor Isaac only gets one chapter in the whole book of Genesis, chapter 26. But you'll look, Jacob has all kinds of information in chapters 27 through 36, and there's two genealogies within that narrative. 
And then finally, Joseph in chapters 37 through 50. So big bulk, Abraham. Eh, Isaac, a little bit. Big bulk, Jacob. Big bulk, Joseph. What on earth is all of this doing? Well, if you read the text closely, the way the book of Genesis is structured around these genealogies is introduced by a very specific term. When you're reading through it, you're going to see that the genealogies follow this statement. The statement is this. This is the account of. Sometimes it's translated, these are the descendants of, or these are the generations of. And it's translating one word in Hebrew, toledot. Toledot. And it's the structure of the book, and it's used ten times in the book of Genesis because it's moving from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And why is it doing that? It's forming the identity of these people that are coming out of Babylon, moving back into the land, establishing themselves within the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls. That's the story that we read as part of the narrative in uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Esther in the Old Testament. Now that brings me back to the story where we began, a star is born. The rise of a star and the decline of another. That pretty much summarizes life, doesn't it? The rise of a star and the fall of another. And all of us are basically Bruce Springsteen trying to hang on to glory dates. And what we find is that we cannot stop the generations from moving us from where we are forward. And we can either go along with it or we can hold back. Now, you have to read Genesis with this in mind. And it is looking to try to reestablish the people so that they can have the same type of experience that they had during the days of King David. And the central question that they are struggling with, and I think that we all struggle with at times, is, are we still the people of God? Are we still the people of God? Genesis attempts to wrestle with God, just like Jacob did when his name was changed from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, one who wrestles with God and prevails. So it's my guess that we all wrestle with self-definition and self-identity at times in our life. At times we feel like we're drowning, right? But if we jump into the deep end, we will discover not only our own self-identity, but the self-assurance that we are the people of God, we are made in the image of God, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. As I conclude the service today, I'm reminded of that self-identity when I'm reminded about the Apostle Paul who had all of this information as a rabbi, but then he met Jesus. And when Jesus came into his life, he began to reform his identity. And he began to understand that he's more than a rabbi. He's more than a Pharisee. He's more than a rich person. He's more than someone who had a lot of privileges in his life. He is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, as he talks about his own transformation, because he was willing to jump into the deep end and not stay in the shallow 
waters of religion, but to jump into the deep end of relationship with the living God who has revealed himself generation after generation. And here's what he says, and may this be your blessing today. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints from all generations what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. When you jump into the deep and wading around in the shallow just doesn't cut it anymore. And so, will you get ready as we forge into sections of Genesis next week? Will you get on that diving board? And will you jump into the deep end? Because when you do and you rise to the surface, you'll find that God's love and faithfulness is the bully that keeps pushing you to the surface. May God bless you. We'll see you next time. Amen.